0: Pete as you know <laughs> Already it's already <laughs> Hold on. Pete I got thrown by 1 comma and everything derailed. Here we go. Pete as <laughs> yes. you know. Pete as, you know. Pete as. call me Pete as. Pete as you know, members of our Panic Pal Society will be receiving this episode just before Halloween, while free mm. listeners will be receiving it just after. So with that in mind, I have a ring. to share with you. <laughs> yes, my favorite word. It's about a woman who lived over three hundred years ago, and she shares something very much in common with you, Pete. Three hundred so, years, and yet what what might would as well we have be in yesterday
1: across time.
0: Would, would you like to hear more? Yeah. Okay, because good. It starts a little morbid, but there's a real life hack waiting for you at the end. Okay, so okay. her name was Hannah Beswick. Uh, and she was born in Cheatwood Old Hall in Manchester, England, in 1688. And when she was 18, her father, John Beswick, passed away, leaving Hannah with a considerable inheritance. And do you know how she spent a good deal of this money, Pete? I I don't. Pokemon she cards? She did it to stave off her greatest fear. And it's a fear you know very well because you share it with her. Yes, Hannah suffered from severe taphophobia which you talked about in the third ever episode of this very podcast. Do you remember what that fear is?
1: I don't want to talk about
0: it. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to talk about it a little bit. It's fear of being buried alive. Oh, God. See, old Hannah had a brush with Tapophobia <laughs> when her older brother John was about to be buried. Just as they were about to close his casket, he showed signs of life as one of the onlookers saw his eyelids flicker. He was further examined by the family physician, Dr. Charles White, was found to be quite alive, regained consciousness a few days later, and live for many more years. I still don't understand how this happened so often. Like, oh we God. just, like, are you alive? Like, just flipping a coin to see if they were dead or not. I don't understand. Anyways, this led Sister Hannah to dread being buried alive. So do you know what she did with that money? Oh, In what? her last will and testament, she paid that same family doctor after her death in February of 1758 to keep her above ground and check her for signs of life every day just to make sure. (laughs) And so that's what Dr. White did. He had her embalmed and she remained on display with the goodly doctor checking every once in a while to see if there were any eyelids fluttering or anything. And then visitors could stop by and take a look. She became like an exhibit. She was deemed the Manchester mummy and it was only in what? 1867 that Hannah Beswick was finally declared quote irrevocably and unmistakably dead and was buried in an unmarked grave that's 110 years after she died that's wow. how much that's how much money she has that's how much this doctor <laughs> kept her above ground <laughs> i mean it's a little ghoulish, obviously. It's around hol- it's around Halloween, yeah. but it's also a pretty good way to get a case to get around a case of the buried alive's. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, it gives me a, a great idea on how to use my estate, which will buy me probably an extra three or four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> what you want, what you need.
0: Welcome to What's That Smell, a sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties. I'm Tommy Metz III. And I'm Eve Wright. And every week, we each drag one of our deepest, darkest anxieties into the light to share it, learn about it, and hopefully laugh about it with all of you. Reach out and send us the story of your anxieties to whatsthatsmell.net. Just go to whatsthatsmell.net. There's a little donate button. (laughs) Click that. Put in your credit card. And then go ahead and give us an anxiety. (laughs) And we'll see if we'll read it on the air and learn and laugh about it with that. And speaking of listener submissions, spoiler alert, I'll go first. I have something to tell you. Oh. Is it harrowing? It is not harrowing. It's uh-huh. something that I don't say enough. I'm okay. no therapist, but I do know this. You're very handsome. Oh, thank you. And you're very good at podcasting. I. What are we doing right now? And you or have much this- better lighting than I do, and this whole show only works because of all the behind-the-scenes this- i can tell a do. grift
1: is coming up this is a, grift, and a long your dog con. is outstanding <laughs> and your kids and your wife they're just okay. perfect and now it's overkill it was you do Believe me right pete there was a line and it's now been crossed
0: so you're suspicious <laughs> yep yep are you afraid i'm only telling you what you want to hear
1: and that you want something
0: well <laughs> what i want to do is start this week's listener submission Ooh, and it has to do with what just happened this is from casey is it Casey's real name, we'll never know. But here we go. Is Casey at the bat? Casey is at the bat. And here's what Casey says. And it starts off with a bang. Honestly, I hate my brain for even thinking of this one. (laughs) So I just want to sit with that for a second. (laughs) Just sort of the already the the (laughs) self-loathing is just streaming through. Stock and Um, trade
1: for this crowd. We're doing fine.
0: Jump on in. Mm -hmm. The loathing is fine. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Honestly, I hate my brain for even thinking of this one, but in the context of a meme that said something like, quote, okay, but could you still see your same therapist if they didn't think you were funny? My immediate reaction was, quote, but does your therapist actually think you're funny? Or does your therapist just know that you need to believe that they think you're funny for your own mental health? That is a riddle, but I'm following along. That quickly morphed to, quote, Can you ever know that anything your therapist says is their actual (laughs) opinion as opposed to simply what they think you need to hear? And I don't have a clue to resolve that one. Yikes. Casey, come in at the bat. I love it. (laughs) This is a good one. This is a very good one. So Uh, good. I, I definitely have some thoughts and advice, and I want to hear what you have to say, but I want to start by telling Casey that once again, you are not alone. Sharp-Eared listeners will know that I have been in therapy for many years with the wonderful Bonnie, and even though we've talked countless number of times, I still worry about our interpersonal relationship, (laughs) as it were, even though we really don't have one. I know this is a little different than what Casey is bringing up, but I worry sometimes about not having enough to talk about, and I worry about bringing up the same thing over and over again. And I've actually, <laughs> I've actually apologized <laughs> to Bonnie on more than a few occasions about talking about the same issues ad nauseum. Oh, that worried, you're,
1: you're doing it wrong.
0: And worried that I'm like yep. her most boring patient. <laughs> uh, to her credit, she makes it very clear that I never need to do that. Uh, but she thanks me for her honesty. Um, I guess at the end of it, my crippling need to be liked <laughs> extends into therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is super depressing, but on brand. Um, so, wow. but Casey is really talking about what their therapist really thinks and how honest they're being. Now, Pete, have you ever trucked in anything like this?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> seriously, have we met? Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, I absolutely have. I feel like it is, for me, it's, it's a little bit more uh, maybe expansive that it's not just my therapist, it's everyone that I know in my life. And oh, no. I have a, a horrible back of mind like child voice that's telling me, uh, you know, I can't
0: believe you're yeah.
1: not you don't any anything that somebody says to you or about you or about what you do is circumspect and nothing that you do is legitimate. And uh, any praise is uh, ill deserved. Things are great.
0: <laughs> Things are great. So it's like a sad Truman show. Yeah. <laughs> like everything's on fire, not just when you try to leave town. <laughs> yeah. Everything's always in fire. I'm place. the
1: definition of laugh, or otherwise I'd be crying. Like that's yeah. it's why this show
0: exists. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to point out, and I hope this isn't too completely uh, obvious, but there are different types of therapy. But most cognitive behavior- behavioral therapy isn't based on a therapist telling you what to do. Right. Giving you tons of advice because that's what a life coach does. Mm-hmm. Potentially, if you're out there and your therapist is just giving you a list of things to do, <laughs> that's not exactly what their job is. A good therapist is really facilitating a conversation between you and yourself, mm-hmm. helping you see past your own learned thought distortions or reexamine old routines. Um, I know Bonnie, ad nauseum, has had to say to me, that is an old feeling. Mm-hmm. That is a very old emotion you're having. does that? And help, that just it,
1: means something that you have, we've already worked through or something that is like something like,
0: that I, that I, I you've carried, took on that I've carried for a long time since I okay. was very young and it's no longer necessarily appropriate. It doesn't, uh, serve you, serve I think is me what they or say. belong. Yeah. Correct. In this current situation. And so maybe it's, if you bring it out into the light, maybe you can discard it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, does Bonnie do a lot of laughing with you though? not like this no. podcast. She's not No.
0: Ch- chuckles McBills by the hour. It is not. She does do a cold open, which is weird. That's <laughs> takes a good 20. She does <laughs>
1: she does do a tight two to teach you something right in the middle of your session.
0: She does. And then there's this weird like she keeps trying to get me to subscribe to different tiers. <laughs> I don't quite know. But I think she's spelling like a T E A R S. <laughs> um so <laughs> So because it's a conversation with yourself, I think one of the things I wanted to suggest to Casey is maybe it doesn't really matter what they think. Mm. It doesn't matter what they're telling you because really you're just talking to yourself. In effect, they're asking questions to lead you down the road so you can try to get out of your own way.
1: OK, do you agree with that? It, it leads. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, practically when I just am just me, not in my <laughs> living in my heart uh, yeah. or, or my uh, self-loathing voice. Of course, that makes perfect sense. But the question is, how do you bridge the gap? Like, how do you get over the the hump of actually saying out loud, it doesn't matter what Bonnie thinks? I'm learning about myself through this dialogue. Um or how do you get to that point of saying that it doesn't matter what Bonnie thinks? And away from the deeply ingrained voice of, God, I hope I'm funny to every individual I meet.
0: I, <laughs> with Bonnie, as I said, I address it. Yeah. You I talk, don't you let, you let it just it out sort loud. of. Yeah, I don't just sort of let it fester. And she thanks me for my honesty. When I come on and say, yeah. hey, I had some anxiety about our call today because I don't have a lot going on. She's always very thankful. She's like, but mm-hmm. I'm very glad that you did make the call. And then she goes, cha-ching, which is weird. No, she <laughs> says um, she's very thankful. And some of those sessions have been the absolute most rewarding. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like shower thinking. I didn't go in with a actual purpose. Yeah. Uh, And so it just sort of something snuck in through the side hatch. Um, So I think bringing it up at least gets it out of my head. Mm -hmm. That makes a big difference for me. Uh, Just because it's not Misery Loves Company. It's just I'm miserable if we met yet. (laughs) I don't know. How about you? you? Are you able to ever do it?
1: Well, I, I think I go back and forth between, like, being able to, to talk about it out loud and then feeling just exhausted at hearing my own inner voice and outer voice talking about how I have to talk through it. Like, I, I start feeling the sort of parallel uh, anxiety of, I don't want to saddle my wife and friends and family with this again. I guess I'll just swallow it again. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm you know, the good. they've heard it before. I'm not telling them anything new. It's just how I feel every day. I have to like shut up. And that is its own separate special gift box of of feelings that I don't I don't right. love living with. Right. I don't love living with that inside my head because that just exacerbates the 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 issue. Like, I, I don't know that 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 is certainly not a solution. That's definitely my the the hard space that that liminal space yeah. that I live between, like acknowledging out loud who I am inside versus who I present as. Uh, And try to present to somebody kind of with it from day to day, (laughs) which is which is hard sometimes. I think, um, you know, the fact that I that I feel like I can't trust uh, that that my anxiety is telling me that I can't trust the things people say about me leads me to a lot of sort of like packaged responses. You know, the packaged uh, grace. Mm, What do you mean? Thanks. Like I I know how to say, you know, um, thank you. That means a lot um, you know, with a degree of sincerity that feels authentic when I actually am in my head saying that I still am not really sure that they like my work or that they like what I've done or that they like me. And, um, and that's, you know, that's the, that's the piece that's, that's challenging that I feel like, and I, and I wonder if, uh, if this gets to anything that Casey is dealing with, right. That I feel like I am like when I, when I tell my therapist that, you know, I believe you, I thank you for that reflection, that I am still kind of lying inside.
0: You are. Okay, because I, when I have insights, and she always gives me credit for them, because that's good looking out, Bonnie. um, Even though I'm like, you clearly did that. You just led me (laughs) like a rat through a maze. Yeah, this is Um, why you're still
1: paying off student loans, Bonnie.
0: Are you, so are you just trying to fix yourself I mean, are you pretending to be fixing yourself just to make her or your therapist feel better? Yeah,
1: I think that's the swing, right? That's the part that is so challenging. is And, and that's, why, that's why you need a therapist so badly. Because right. you can't do it yourself and you need somebody to be able to see through it, right? You need somebody right. who can look at you and say, this is why you are struggling with self-appreciation because you're lying to me right now. And by virtue of that, you're lying to yourself. That that not everybody is as is as cynical as you portray them to be. Right. Right? That's yes, very much
0: so. And I'm glad that you brought up family and friends because another way of looking at this is family and friends, a lot of time, they will tell you what you want to hear because Mm -hmm. they're your friends and your Mm -hmm. family. So maybe if your therapist is telling you what you need to hear, maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's not something to be looked at as uh, fraudulent, uh, Mm. because you have friends and family, they tell you what you want to hear. Maybe it's important to have someone outside of everyday interactions that can just zero in on the problem, not take it with a whole bowl of peat, but instead just be able to see what the issue is and find those routines, find those patterns and try to bring them out into the light. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. not a bad thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. I, you know, uh, I, I think the, So, you know, I go back to this experience that I had, that uh, it was one of my very first client experiences that and I carry this around to this day. It was nearly. I mean, it was it was probably 18 years ago. Okay, it was one of my very first freelance gigs, and it was one of the first times that I had picked up a, a video camera in a lot of years because, you know, I hadn't run a camera since I was, you know, for probably ten years before that, when I was still working in television, and I had quit my job and I was really excited to uh, freelance and I had this client that was fantastic, and they were creating educational content they needed uh, they needed somebody to go and fly around to universities up and down the west coast and take video of professors teaching this thing and they were gonna put it online and do this educational content. And the, the I had done some copyright for them that they really liked. And I, I got this gig because it was a, a a friend's wife who worked for this company and my friend said, hey, you should look at Pete. He's picking up the camera and doing this stuff. You should send him my first gig was to go down to Stanford and rent a bunch of equipment at a local video place and take that equipment Presumably knowing how to use it and then (laughs) set it up and record this person for several hours, like a day. Uh, It was a day job to go and and video them And, and and do this thing and send them reliable video back. And what I realized when I picked up the load of equipment that I had rented rented was that a lot had changed in 10 years and I Mm -hmm. did not know how to use it reliably. And I spent the night before in the hotel room uh, trying to figure it all out. And I thought I had a pretty good sense of it and I could I could run things and push the record button and get all that done. But I couldn't light. Lighting was tough. And so I Mm -hmm. ended up in a location that was terrible. And I short story long. I did bad work. I t- returned to them objectively bad work. And uh, even though I'm still in freelance and I'm still doing the same stuff that I have been doing now for 20 years since, uh, that experience of having them pay me out in, in a way to get rid of me because they never used that, you know, the six hours of video that I sent them because it was uncolorable uh, at the time. Mm. still haunts me and that it that experience still haunts me to the point that i question everything that anybody says to me about what i what i do
0: but what did they say to you because you're you're describing imposter syndrome but what was their reaction were they like gross here's your money no they said this is
1: we don't think we can use this and uh but we we i mean it's this is not the video that we expected And it's it is video that we're not going to be able to use and we're going to pay out the contract, which was extremely generous. And I didn't expect it. And I wouldn't have asked for it had I not been just sent a check and never worked with them again. And. But
0: are you glad that they told you the truth? How would it have been worse if you knew that it was really bad and then they said, thank you so much. Here's your money. This is great. And then you don't know what the truth is because that's what Casey's talking about. No, I know. But that's
1: what's interesting though, is that this was a real experience where I got the truth. But from then on, I'm in Casey land, which is, it doesn't (laughs) matter what anybody says to me. I have such a low opinion of the work that I do that I don't believe anyone ever is saying anything authentically and truthfully to me, like about me, my experience and the work that I do. Like, It is that therapist experience of do they really think I'm funny or are they just saying, do they really think the work is good or are they just saying that to, you know, to get rid of me right now?
0: (laughs) Do you see see how weird that is? It's very insidious. And, you know, it's you also you were paying a therapist. (laughs) And so they have a reason to keep you
1: around. There's an economic relationship. Yeah,
0: unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I guess I can't tell that whole story just in a way to say, I don't think, Casey, that you're alone, and you're not alone right here. (laughs) Right. Right. Do you have an answer for me? Is that what your research is going to get to the silver bullet? That's going to kill this werewolf?
0: No. (laughs) I don't have an answer. (laughs) There's no real... Really, like when you do research on it, it's mainly just about how some people wrongly go into a therapist looking for someone, looking for a life coach. Yeah. And for that, you want a life coach. Therapy is a gift you give yourself, and therapy is a conversation you are having with yourself. And so that's very telling that we both have so much trouble Mm -hmm. with some of that and worried what our therapist thinks of us. Really, because we're just talking to ourselves. (laughs) And that's just bringing up our own baggage and stuff as we go along. So, I mean, ideally, you would be able to look past that and realize that their job is to not have an opinion necessarily about you and to try to give you that opinion. It's to just help you work through your own stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it's a transactional uh, relationship. And maybe, hopefully, there's a little bit of comfort to be found in that? I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. But I I also come back to the to the fact that and this is what I you know, where I kind of live is that, you know, getting to the heart of this issue is a practice. It it requires constant everyday sort of mindfulness on this. And the work happens, you know, maybe even not in therapy, but in every relationship that you have with, you know, close friends and family is to stop and say, you know, out loud or, you know, in your head, like, you know, is this person saying something to me that hits me sideways? Um, Is it sideways because I don't believe it or is it sideways because I don't feel it's true? No, I have I I have reason. My self-worth is enough reason to believe them, right? I Mm -hmm. have to practice saying yes to this compliment. I have to practice saying yes to this every day. And and that leads to, um, you know, increased self-worth over time. And, right. And I should add, it just becomes I, like a reflex. Yeah, it's a reflex. And I should it's say a, a I don't muscle. feel like this every day. I don't feel like this. Like I go through bouts where it's harder than other times. Right. Like mm-hmm. I, I go through challenges when I question my own work. It's it, you know, it's it's harder to it's even harder to take other people's people at their word when they talk sure. about it. Right. It's when compounding. I, it's because you're fragile.
0: Yeah. yeah. Right.
1: Right. But it's real, and it exists, and it's every day uh, at some level.
0: Yeah. One of the big things that I do that we have uncovered, it was really an insight that I had, <laughs> um, <laughs> is uh, I am very good at filling the void. Yeah. When there is a void of conversation, I end up having that conversation in my head.
1: Or right. I imagine,
0: <laughs> or I imagine two people talking about me by themselves.
1: Yeah. And you're listening to them about you. Yeah.
0: Right. And they're nowhere near me. (laughs) They're in another state, but I have decided (laughs) that we're in a big fight. (laughs) And it kicks in so so
1: fast, right? So fast. That spiral of imposter syndrome or uh, whatever it's like.
0: Inferiority. Inferiority. comes, Of
1: course, it kicks in so, so fast. And uh, it's, Rough And really, all they're saying is crazy, crazy,
0: crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So, Casey, I mean, it's just something that you want to be mindful of and work on. I wouldn't not bring it up to your therapist. Wouldn't not? Is that the best way to
1: say that? That was
0: exceptional double negativing. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I think it's, that it's means, Casey, you should talk to your therapist. I would think if that's something that in yeah. because if therapy is a gift that you're giving yourself, if you're spending too much time during a session thinking about that, bring it up. Yeah. Your therapist has been asked this and many worse things. And so I would say bring that out into the light and see what they have to say about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think so, too.
0: If anything, it
1: will change your relationship just a little bit with your therapist. Like there will be a different position uh, that they probably take in the way they talk to you about the things you're working on for good. Like that's a good thing.
0: But if they start to move in, reach back out to Pete and I, (laughs) because that is also a hard no.
1: (laughs) Is that what you're suggesting, that they might be a roommate? Sure.
0: I don't know. It's on the no list. I'm just saying, reach back out to us.
1: It's on the no list. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Also, everyone should have a no list when working with their therapist. Yes,
0: a no Mine, no list. mine
1: starts with no whiteboarding and number two is now no roommates.
0: <laughs> right. No excessive notes and no touching in the bathing suit area. That's all the... <laughs> This is all classic Therapy 101. (laughs) Therapy
1: 101. (laughs) Nailed it. Nailed it. Thanks to the Bible, we have the story of King Nebuchadnezzar II of Neo-Babylonian Empire, in which he, he is described as being driven from men and did eat grass as oxen. In another tale, Buyid prince Majd al-Dawla made the sound of a cow and asked that he be killed such that his flesh could be consumed. These two men were reportedly suffering from a psychological regression written about by the likes of Carl Jung in the early 20th century. Today, it's a form of clinical lycanthropy describing the condition of a human believing that they can transform into, has transformed into, or is, An animal. In this case, a cow. There's a word specifically describing this subset of lycanthropic individuals. Boanthropy. A human believing they're a cow. They might eat grass. They might attempt to live in a field. They might emit the sounds of a cow. Some analysts believe this is a form of regression of humans finding their connection to past lives, past experiences. And indeed, some consider boanthropic sufferers as though who live with persistent thought spirals or dreams of cow living, even though they may not manifest behavior of cows themselves. Maybe, say others, boanthropics are simply saddled with negative connotations of humans as cattle, eyes down, Meandering mindlessly through their lives, totems of the emptiness that is the human experience. Moo. A bug, you're not a cow. You're a person. And people only eat grass when it's lettuce-shaped and on a burger. And if you're people-shaped and listening to this podcast, grab your wallet and become a What's That Smell Panic Pal. For just $35 for the season, you're supporting the creation of 12 more episodes of steaming hot content. You get to join us for our live stream recording sessions, early access to each episode in your own personal podcast feed, our member community Discord server, and a collection of our new new Season 7 stickers. Visit What's whatsthatsmell.net and become a Panic Pal today. Tom. I don't know what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. Oh, go ahead. okay. Should we talk about that? No. <laughs> You've done a brisket recently. That was good. Um, I did. Didn't you do a little with a sandwich? A okay. pot roast. You want to talk about my thing? Yeah. All right. Um, So as you know, as we talked about in our members only uh, pre-show, I did finish my colonoscopy. A couple of days mm-hmm. ago. This is actually, I, you know, I, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I am going to do this unprecedented timing for this particular show. Had you had we recorded this on our original date of Thursday, that would have been just an hour before I began the bowel prep segment of the colonoscopy yep. and leading to the Friday, which I actually had the procedure. And then, uh, and, and you called in sick on Thursday. You said, I can't I do it on Thursday. So now you catch me on Saturday, unprecedented Saturday recording session to talk about now I have had the, the procedure Man. and, and been through the process
0: and got you coming and going. <laughs> you really
1: you th- those, see those kinds of statements, I think are yeah. going to ring heavier in this episode, Yeah, given the nature of the procedure. But I wanted Did I to tell talk you about- why
0: I couldn't, record on thursday <laughs> no i had an elective uh colonoscopy <laughs> <laughs> i just, just wanted, wanted I to
1: knock yeah. it out yeah. yeah they put me on the every four week plan it was pretty recent yeah. for you right like yeah right so, yeah. yeah well and you were clean right No uh, Mm -hmm. issues. Right. I was clean as well. That that little bit of anxiety was gone. But but that was not the most of my anxiety. Right. The most of my anxiety was, you know, I'm a needle guy. We've talked about my needle phobia. I Mm -hmm. struggled a little bit with the IV. That was not easy. But the thing that I found myself really thinking about uh, was the anesthesia because I haven't been knocked out uh, because it was that space of being knocked out of losing control. I had that moment where I was like the guy with the anesthesiologist was so nice. And he said, uh, he said, you know, I am, um, you know, it's, uh, really, I'm, I just, if you had trouble with anesthesia, well, I haven't been knocked out since I was sixteen, right, seventeen, when I had my tonsils out. All right, mm. well, this is just, you're gonna fall asleep, and and in my head, I said, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not gonna.
0: I'm going to count all the way back from ten to one. Yeah,
1: yeah. show these rules. He, he didn't even he and so they roll me in. They roll me in. Mm-hmm. This is where things start to go a little bit sideways because I'm already thinking the worst about the entire experience. And they roll me in. The anesthesiologist is the only guy who comes and talks to me before the surgeon doesn't come and talk before because he's too busy. Oh. I guess you know he never okay. came and talked to me. Right. The huh. only time I see the surgeon, right, the first time he he opens the curtain to my little waiting room and he looks at me and he says, "Oh, uh, hi." and then closes the curtain and walks away. And okay, the next well, time I see him, he's not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> next time I see him, they have rolled me into the procedure room mm-hmm. and he's got his mask on and they plug me into the anesthesia and they plug all the leads and things on me to monitor me. And they kind of start rolling me over and I've rolled over on my left to begin. And he gets mm-hmm. right up in my face and he says, OK, now I need to talk to you about the risks. There is a risk that we will nick the, the bowel and that you will bleed and that will require immediate surgery. There is a risk that you will blah, blah, blah. And I have he was already a peanuts parent to me by that point, and I thought maybe you should have talked to me about this personally <laughs> a few minutes before you rolled me into the surgery theater yeah. and plugged me into the anesthesia. Because the next thing I hear is, "All right, we're going to send a little drip of the uh, of the medicine to make you sleepy." So here you go, and I was like, "Okay, I guess we wave all this other stuff off and hope it's <laughs> fine."
0: A not good way to do all. Of I know that. it was just I had so a much fast. better experience.
1: Oh. That's a relief that better experience exists because the next yeah. thing was my uh my bullheadedness, which was okay, okay. it's uh he says he's going to do I'm looking at the screen, I can start seeing the camera that they're you know, I see that the screen is in front of me, and the camera is kind of waving around as they're getting their instruments of of probing ready. And uh, so I can see it on the blanket that I'm on and it's kind of moving around and I'm looking at the screen and I see my name on the screen and I see the doctor's name on the screen and I start counting myself. And he's the anesthesiologist above me says, yeah, here we go. Just a little bit. It's going to make you sleepy. And I'm like, no, it's not. I'm going to be fine. Uh, I'm going to just watch this screen and it's going to be fine. And I'm not going to do anything like anywhere near falling asleep. Oh, (laughs) For crying out loud, here it comes. Oh, God.
0: You could feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, see, I? I was so mad. Never feel it coming. I'm counting down. Well, I don't even remember counting down. I'd lose time from before that.
1: Oh, okay. All right. So you yeah. lose time. Like, like, what's the last thing you remember before you were knocked out the last time?
0: Give me your wallet.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you so don't need it in, in an alley? Yeah. Yeah, no. I'm, uh, Is there
1: a, such a thing as a back alley colostomy?
0: <laughs> like, absolutely. <I> <laughs> it's back behind that yeah, I was going to say Jiffy Lube, but that's too on the nose. Um yeah, no, I I don't remember I get carted in and then we all say hi and then they had me turn on my side and mm-hmm. then that's all I remember. I don't remember counting down.
1: Okay. Well, that that's the part that I was really thinking about leading up to it, the part well, why would you that want I want inclined-
0: to be awake. Because just, it, it, you just't no, 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 this is
1: okay, so this is the anxiety it's tomophobia we've kind of brought this up before it's fear of this sur- sort of surgical environment fear of surgery and um, and there are a number of reasons that you fear surgery uh, we've reviewed this before fear you won't wake up, fear you will wake up, fear that you yep. won't be fully unconscious, like those are the big three fear of pain is a close number four uh and all of those things are wrapped into about a three second window for me
0: mm.
1: of the space before I feel like I'm going to be knocked out and the space after I feel like I'm going to be knocked out. And because I haven't experienced this in a long, long time, the weight of all of those feelings, I think, was very, very heavy. The first time I experienced anesthesia, I was curious about the whole experience and i thought this is i wonder what this is going to be like i was uh you know i was young and and uh you know young and bold and brash and ambitious and i took my brave pill and i was ready to experience anything <laughs> and uh and this time i was like oh god does does my wife know where all the passwords are like maybe I need, maybe I need to start. It's that little space, that three second window where my entire life is is yeah. flashing before my lives. And then I woke up and I they mm-hmm. like pushed me around and said, Hey Pete, it's time to wake up. Pete, 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 you want a ginger ale? Pete, I got a ginger ale and some crackers for you. Yep. And that that was it. And I I looked at the clock and I had completely lost time. And mm-hmm. then I am filled with the experience of, oh, my God, what did you do to me? Right. Total (laughs) loss of control, total loss of control. So I got through the the fear of, you know, dying, not waking up, fear of waking up and and all of those things. We should reiterate, those are very, very rare, like dying under anesthesia happens less than one in one hundred thousand, which seems like maybe not that much. Like if you look at a giant football stadium. A person is dead in that stadium from anesthesia <laughs> no. that no. I think about that. Sorry for that one person. You chose to see a Pats game and you end up walking home, you know, into a, <laughs> into a bus. Um, you are twice as likely to die in a tornado in the United States than dying in uh, in a in surgery from anesthesia. Die in a tornado. I saw Twister. A lot of people died in Twister mm-hmm. in that movie for, both from the event that it depicted and from just seeing it because it doesn't age well. Um, uh, And so I, you know, I was just kind of researching, what is it? Like, what, how do you get to the other side of this? Do you remember how we get to the other side of this? Because this felt like, as I was reading up on, on tomophobia this time around, I found a preponderance of research that says you should do this one thing before you go into surgery. If you haven't. And it never occurred to me. And I oh. worry that we've talked about it, but I blacked out.
0: <laughs> I don't remember off the top of my head. We've definitely talked about ang- or anesthesia. I told my graham cracker story. Yeah. Um, uh, but no, what, what, what is it? It was talk to words? your. No, talk to your anesthesiologist. And oh, well, I they should come this. in and say hello anyway. See, I don't like your experience. I do no, know. Well, and that's what I mean. My I
1: anesthesiologist came in. My anesthesiologist okay. talked to me, but I didn't know that it was okay to ask these questions specifically to him because mm. he was awesome, and he was very kind, and he asked me if I had any questions, but I was kind of paralyzed in the moment, and I sure. didn't ask. I didn't ask any of those questions, and I read this fantastic essay by, um, by, 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 wait for it, wait for it, it's coming, I promise, Kathy Catella. Kathy okay. Catella works is an anesthesiologist at Yale Medicine, and Kathy wrote this incredible essay about dealing with, the the fear and fear of pain, fear of anesthesia, all of this, uh, from the perspective of being an anesthesiologist, and she said, mm. "What many people don't know is that anesthesiologists are not only trained in." The the management of pain and anesthesia in the surgical theater, but they're also trained in the psychological challenges that come with being a patient and dealing with this loss of control oh, and the fear. And they smart. you can call their office anytime leading up to surgery. They call it the pre like the pre work, prehab. She calls mm-hmm. it prehab, like doing the the there's rehab on the other side, you know, as you wake up and you're rehabilitating out of a surgery experience, oh, but there's right. also prehab, which is call your office, the anesthesiologist's office. Us. they have people who are trained to talk you through this experience and that oh, was something wow. I don't think I ever knew and she the way she talks about how generous they are and how much work they do to deal with people who are terrified of this experience that they anything you're feeling about dealing with this the surgery experience the fear of waking up the fear of not waking up the fear of uh, yeah. not being fully unconscious they can help you get to the other side of that and they can give you the exercises that you need to to prepare yourself for that experience. And I thought that was really, uh, that was quite a gift um, to deal with that part of tomophobia um, that uh, I, I thought was That's really, really special. Smart. Yeah, it was super uh, smart. super. Because while
0: I knew that the anesthesiologist came and talked to me, I mm-hmm. didn't know that I could have called her beforehand. And she was giving me, because they had to give me value for my value. <laughs> I was <laughs> right, so nervous because right. I have white coat effect. That um, if I I think I talked about, I don't remember if I talked about it, but I was lying back and looking up at the hospital lights and I had my own little room and my blood pressure was through the roof because it was, I was very scared because I was like, oh, this is what it's going to look like when, if I'm ever really hurt or Mm -hmm. really sick. A dumb thing to think about. Shut your brain off. Totally. And so I couldn't calm down. And she was like, okay, you know, we're going to give you something for your something. So she gave me yeah. Valium, which helped. And so they could give me full anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that I had to have pills for my pills. Well, joke. We had
1: that exact experience. That was that was my too. Like I was already the, the, they had the blood pressure cuff on and right. it was like it was off the hook beeping in the background. Yeah, that the, the, by the nurse who was working with me beforehand, it was like, you've got a little little anxiety about coming to the hospital, don't you? I said, yeah. can you tell? Is that not enough of a note? Do you have to actually yeah. hear me say it? It's beeping Your blood nonstop. blood pressure is beeping yeah. the
0: theme from right. the Axel F. And so <laughs> From Beverly he had, Hills he totally,
1: <laughs> <laughs> he had dee dee to give dee dee me dee dee dee. an injection to numb my arm before he could give me That's the IV exciting. to I actually put me to sleep. So it was uh it was that that sort of meta experience. Like I was physiologically compromised for sure during this yeah. experience. But the other piece is I realized that. Because it had been so long, that gap between these sort of anesthesia experiences, these fear experiences, was very long. And I have painted a picture of what that experience would be like that was uh, both um, sort of created out of pure fiction and watching way too much ER and Mm -hmm. then you know 4 years ago uh, 5 years ago with being with my dad during heart surgery and watching the right. number of things they had to push into his body um mm. like firsthand and that has been my entire experience of of this it's like dramatic trauma uh, as told through television and movies and real trauma as told through a, an experience that i likely will never go through um hopefully yeah. and uh, is all is way off the charts traumatic, and ultimately, my experience was actually pretty good. Like they were really kind, and uh, and I just didn't. I think I would have been saved a lot of that internal just distress by yeah. knowing that I could ask these questions of these specific right. people. And I just didn't.
0: A, I didn't do it. I was a good too resource. Scared. I, yeah. I had no idea that that resource was there. Yeah, and that they had that
1: that level of training. Like I see anesthesiologists and. Uh, surgeons and the people who are doing all the work as um, real, like solid specialists. And Mm -hmm. I should not be like, that's part of my white coat anxiety, which is don't talk to or touch the people who are doing the stuff because you don't want to make them mess up. And oh, you're, you're going right? to
0: distract them? Yeah, yeah. Like any of my <laughs> questions are going
1: to have them take their eye off the ball, right? You <laughs> don't yeah. want to do any of that. And so I, uh, that's, where, that, that's where I ended up. And so I, I guess in that way, this is a little recap only because it's very, very fresh in my yeah. mind. Uh, and uh, blissfully, I'm on the 10-year plan. So I don't have to do this again for another decade. And hopefully Wonderful. that will be the next time. I did get to thinking, like, what if? What is the thing? So it's pretty re- recent for you. So I ask you this yeah. as a thought experiment. A lot has changed since the last time I, uh, I-, I was under anesthesia uh, to this time. Like one of the big ones is, am I going to implicate myself somehow as the anesthesia is wearing off? Because when the last time I was under anesthesia, coming out of it was a long process, and I was a real comedy factory. Like, I think I sang some Monty Python. I, I, know I, I know I sang, I feel happy. I think I'll see what's happening on TV. That's been with me forever. Like, I remember that <laughs> there's some sort of video of me, like, drugged up singing that kind of thing. This time, they pushed me awake. And within about 30 seconds, I was awake. And so that is an extraordinary change. That the medicine sure. is the so, runway is so a lot much shorter. Different. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the one thing like, is there one thing that you can imagine in 10 years that you would like future Tommy to be able to witness in his next procedure? Uh, like that they could modernize in future medicine.
0: I am an enormous fan of carbonation. And so, if I, if I could have a carbonated IV, I think that'd be fun. It'd be like a Willy Wonka IV. Yeah.
1: Maybe Just, that's part of the scope that the scoping itself is is somehow right. carbonated. Sure. Sort of Carbonated that's real, bowel treatment. Yeah. That's, oh, I'm really upset that you brought that up. I'm really upset <laughs> that this thought experiment has led to carbonation, <laughs> internal carbonation. That's not good for either of us.
0: Well, the thing I just remember the thing that I was the most nervous about, the reason they had to give me Valium is the whole time I was like, does my anesthesiologist think I'm funny? <laughs> I know I feel the
1: pain. You think I'm just some simple guy. Thank you all so much for joining us this episode. This week's tune is Never Comes for Free by Captain Cubes. Coming up next week, I'm a
0: real red state anxiety hog. <laughs> <hug. laughs> Get out of my head. Yeah. I want to suffer alone and in silence. <laughs> I can't keep shivering when you keep talking to me and making me feel better. <laughs>
1: Once a banana sticker is on my coffee maker, then all I want to do is peel-, peel my <laughs> coffee maker. Yeah. Coffee maker. Yeah.
0: Exactly. I've never seen a sticker lie to me. Are you saying I wasn't doing a grape job? <laughs>
1: I think I might be in a floating milkshake chair right now and not know it.
0: Right now? Yeah. And yet, in your dreamscape, you still choose to do this podcast <laughs> for our listener. <laughs> Until then, I'm Tommy Metz III.
1: And I'm Pete Wright. Thank you for downloading. We'll be back next week on What's That Smell?